I'm in the book of Isaiah tonight, chapter 40. I've been preaching through Isaiah at our church, and I imagine I'll be there for a few more years. Uh, It is such a wonderful book. My goal was to take it in big chunks, and when I came to Isaiah 40, I sat down and I prepared a message from Isaiah 40, and... uh, My wife said, are you going to preach that all at one time? And I thought about it, and it ended up being three messages out of uh, Isaiah 40. You're getting the third one this morning, perhaps, or this afternoon. Perhaps a more familiar text. I remember memorizing this text uh, in 1970, 71, when I was a brand new believer. Some of you weren't even born then, maybe. But that's like 47, 48 years ago. But I remember memorizing it out of the King James Version, and it has always encouraged me. But even more so now, understanding the context that it's in and the promise to the suffering people of God, it is such a wonderful text. Let me give you a little background before we actually look at Isaiah 40, 27 through 31. You really have to go back to chapters 38 and 39 to understand what is happening in chapters 40 through 66. If you've read through Isaiah, then perhaps you've noted, as many others have, that it seems like there's almost two Isaiahs because chapters 1 through 39 are so full of judgment, even though they are, they do talk about God's great salvation, but they're really an indictment on the people of God uh, under the old covenant. But when you come to chapters 40 through 66, it is much more hope, it is much more forward-looking, it's actually talking in many ways about the return from the Babylonian exile that would take place in the future. But all of that really foreshadows uh, the greater return from exile when we are delivered from our sin by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But back in 38 and 39, it's sort of the end of the story of Hezekiah, who was one of the good, perhaps better kings of Judah, who for most of his life was faithful to God, uh, destroyed idolatry and tried to bring the people back to true worship, though that was pretty futile. But at the end of his life, he has an instance of pride. And the son of the king of Babylon comes to visit him. And Hezekiah shows him the glory of his kingdom, the wealth of the kingdom, the palace. Instead of showing him the glory of the temple and the worship of the true God, he showed him the glory of what is important to men who don't love God. And the prophet comes to him and indicts him. He tells them that because of your faithfulness, God's judgment isn't going to come in your generation, but your sons, your descendants 
will go into captivity. The very ones that you showed your wealth to are going to come back and they are going to decimate this kingdom and take the people of God into captivity. And that's really how the first section of the book of Isaiah ends in chapters 38 and 39 with this the story of judgment. The people of God are going into captivity. This had to be disconcerting to those among old Israel that were true Israel, that were really in covenant with God, were faithful to God. They weren't idolaters. And yet because they're part of this entity, the people of God, they will suffer like everyone else. They will be taken into captivity. And their question is, what about our salvation? You are the God who saves us. You promised to save us. So what about our salvation? Will you save us? Will you sustain us in our suffering? And so what Isaiah will do beginning in chapter 40 is he will give the people of God a renewed vision of the glory of God, of this God who saves sinners and secures sinners and satisfies sinners. Verse 9, earlier in chapter 40, sort of captures what Isaiah's message is. The text says, Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Good news, translated from the Hebrew to Greek, is the evangel, the gospel. And for Isaiah, and let me say with Paul also, the gospel is behold your God. It is always centered in what God does for sinners. The gospel is never about what I do to save myself. It's never about what I do to help God to save me. It's never about anything that I would try to contribute to God's salvation. Isaiah's gospel message is, Behold your God. And that's Paul's message. It's pointing to this gospel of God, what God does for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah wants the people of God who will suffer to be assured that God will save them. He's able to save them. It doesn't matter what may happen to them. He will save them. And so he paints for them a portrait in Isaiah 40 of the magnificence of this God who saves sinners. I wish I could preach all three sermons, but I'll only preach one tonight. But in the first 11 verses of chapter 40, Isaiah talks about this God who saves sinners, who is what I I call a shepherd king. He is a king with absolute power and sovereignty, but he's not just strong. He's a shepherd. He cares for his people. He guides his people. 
His people can trust this powerful shepherd king. That's the first 11 verses. And then the center section of Isaiah 40 presents this God who saves sinners as the great creator God. I'll dip back into there just a little bit tonight. But he talks about God in such magnificent ways that we should sit back in wonder and at times in conviction that we don't trust him. Because if this God is who Isaiah says he is, if he is who he has revealed himself to be in the word of God, then we'll see it's reasonable to trust him. It's foolish not to trust this God that is described as the creator and the sustainer of the universe. The last section that we're dealing with tonight, the final verses are sort of the culmination of the chapter, sort of a a, a call to faith that this shepherd king, this creator God, is one whom we should trust. That he can give us strength in our troubles. He can sustain us through the trials and the troubles of life. He is a dependable God. Now, for many of us, perhaps for all of us, The idea of dependability is lost because we have all been disappointed. You may have had a spouse walk out on you. Someone who made a promise, but you've been disappointed. Our kids disappoint us. Parents disappoint their kids. We have people promise to do something for us and many times they're sincere in the moment. But as time goes on, they don't really have the ability to do what they promise to do for you. And so we, we live with disappointment because of the lack of dependability. And sometimes then we transfer this to our idea of God. That somehow he's going to fail me. That in this instance of life, I cannot be sure that that he will be who he says he is and do what he says he'll do. But Isaiah is going to argue forcefully and beautifully for the fact that God is always a dependable God. Trust him. Listen to his words, beginning in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up 
with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God is a dependable God. He will sustain and strengthen his people even in the midst of their suffering. And they can mount up with wings as eagles. Verse 27 reminds us that God's dependability is a reality. It exists even when our doubts and our fears say otherwise. You know, sometimes it's a choice between do I believe what I feel? Do I believe what I think? Do I believe what my circumstances are screaming out to me? Or do I believe God as he has revealed himself in scripture? Why do you say this, O Jacob, that my way is hidden from the Lord? It's a good reminder that God knows what we're thinking. He knows your conversations. He's listening to your doubts about who he is. But you should know from Isaiah that God doesn't have pity on your doubts and fears. He doesn't empathize with them. He doesn't say, oh, you're, you're only human and I understand why you don't trust me. No, rather God confronts them with who he is. He confronts them with truth and he calls you and I to believe the truth. Why do you say this? He's saying this is irrational. Why would the people of God think that God is oblivious to what is happening in their lives? My way is hidden from God. That what is happening to me, God is helpless to do anything about. That my problems, my circumstances, my suffering is beyond God's ability to sustain me. God is listening to all of it and he's saying it's foolish. Because you know who I am. But do you believe it? One of my favorite parts of Isaiah chapter 40. It used to be the end of the chapter. But one of my favorite parts has become verse 12. Where in a series of six questions, Isaiah challenges the people of God to think. Because they're really asking, can God really save us? And verse 12 says this. He asks, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Now think about it for a moment. Especially think about it if you think you can save yourself. Because Isaiah is saying, your ability to save yourself is equivalent to your ability to scoop up the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Indian, the Arctic, the Mediterranean Sea, the Caribbean Sea, the Gulf of Mexico, all of the great bodies of the wa of water in this on planet Earth, 
which he says God holds in the palm of his hand. And you can't even hold a bathtub full of water in your hand. Your ability to save yourself is like your ability to hold the seven oceans, bodies of water in your hand. But he tells us God does that. He is so immense beyond our ability to comprehend. He is so immense that he holds the water in his hand, these waters in his hand. I think the longest tape measure I have in my toolbox is 26 feet. If I had a laser measure, perhaps I could measure about 650 feet with a good laser measure. I know that astronomers with their intricate computer mathematics, they are able to measure distance in observable space. And they tell us that the observable universe is 46 billion light years across. Now, I can't even fathom what one light year is like. Because a light year is the distance that light would travel in a year. But how fast does light travel? You remember from uh, elementary school? Is it 186,000 miles a second? So how do you calculate how far light travels in a year? And then to say that the observable universe by computer models is calculated to be 46 billion light years across. How would you measure that with your hand? Well, you can't even measure the pew you're sitting on with your hand. You would get tired trying to measure this room with your hand. But Isaiah says God measures the universe by the span of his hand. I don't, this is incomprehensible to me, but that's okay. I love worshiping a God that I cannot fully capture in this peanut brain of mine. But I know that this God who can hold the seven seas in his hand and can measure this universe with the span of his hand, I know this God is powerful enough to save me. He can and he does save sinners. He knows how much dust is on the earth and he weighs it. You don't even know how much dust is in your home and you don't want to know. This is the God we worship. It is not reasonable. Why? Why do you say my way is hidden from God? Why would you even think that God is oblivious to what is going on in your life right now? But this is what suffering often does to us. It distorts our thinking. 
It distorts what we know about God. And if we let it go uncontrolled, then we will, be ha- we will begin to have an image of God that is not true to the Word of God, and ultimately we have idolatry. But if we believe what Isaiah says, now my way is not hidden from God. This God who holds the seven seas in his hands and who measures the span of the universe and who knows how much dust there is and who knows what the mountains weigh, you know, the Andes and the Rockies and the Appalachians and the Adirondacks and the Catskills and and all of the great ranges the largest of which we don't even see because the largest mountains are in the ocean. And yet God knows how much they weigh. He knows it all. You can trust that if God says he will save you, he will save you. How can you say that my my right, the word there is justice. My justice is disregarded by God. How can you say that, 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 that God is not being fair with me, that he's not giving me what I really deserve in life? Now this is really a distortion that suffering often brings about in our thinking. Because apparently God's people were having a conversation that went something like this. We deserve better than what's happening to us. Why, why are we suffering when we've done our best to be faithful? We've repudiated idolatry. We go to church every Sunday. We read our Bibles every day. We're involved in evangelism. God! You have abandoned what I really deserve. You're not being fair with me. But whenever you are self-justifying, that is when you are trying to argue your rightness before God, it is always tragic. Because if you are self-justifying, it's rooted in your pride. And if you are proud, God pushes you away. He resists the proud. Nobody who argues their right to something better in life will ever get something better from God. You remember the two men who went to the temple. The one pounded on his chest and said, this is all that I've done. Aren't you impressed, God? And the other one said... God be merciful to me, a sinner. And this man went down to his house justified. Really, has God disregarded your justice? Well, what do you really deserve? I mean, who are you really? I mean, is Paul right in Romans when he says there aren't any that are righteous? There's no one who really does good constantly. We're all going out of the way. We've together become unprofitable. There's none that does good. No, not one. 
The truth is, you don't want what you deserve from God. No one in Judah, if they really thought about it, wanted justice from God if they truly understood who they were and who God is. I find it interesting that when Isaiah addresses them, he addresses them as Jacob and Israel. Now, you know, in your Bible, it's the same person, Jacob and Israel. But it's the same person at different times in life. You know, Jacob is the name of a man who is in rebellion against God, who's lying and cheating and maneuvering his way through life without trusting in God. Jacob is someone who is unredeemed. He's unadopted. He's really not a true son of God. But we know that when, when, when Jacob wrestled with a theophany at Peniel. And ultimately, God broke him, touched his hip so that he walked the rest of his life with a limp, remembering that transforming moment with God. But God changed his name. You are now a prince of God. You are Israel. But when Isaiah addresses both Jacob and Israel, I think he's telling us that whether you are the unredeemed Jacob, the unadopted Jacob, or you are the redeemed Israel, the adopted son Israel, you are still capable of self-justification. Not only people outside of Christ have bad theology and bad thinking about themselves, Sometimes we do also. We revert to a bad idea of who we really are and a bad idea who God is. And just as sinners are self-justifying and want to believe that they can earn God's favor and, and get what they want from him because of their own goodness, sometimes we revert to that. And we sound like the people that Israel is that Isaiah is addressing. My right, my justice has been abandoned by God. God's not giving me what I deserve because I've been good. Why do I suffer? And the truth is we don't always have an answer to why do I suffer except our answer is God. God's letting me suffer and he's good and he's gracious and he knows and I trust him. But I may not have any other answer beside that. But it should be good enough if I trust this God. But the truth is God hasn't disregarded the justice of the people of God. He understands that what they really deserve is judgment. That their sin requires death. And instead of disregarding justice, we know the story of the gospel that God himself takes on human flesh and he suffers the judgment that you and I deserve. This is true justice. He satisfies his justice in himself so he can be merciful to me, a sinner. 
we all need to be careful in our suffering that it's the word of God that is instructing us as to who God is. Because suffering often will teach you something, try to teach you something about God that is contrary to who he really is. He's dependable whether you think he is or not. What I think about him does not change who God is. But secondly, he reminds that, he's the, that his dependability endures in verse 28 simply because of who he is. The Lord, that is the sovereign, personal Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of steadfast love, the Lord, this personal covenant God, is the everlasting God. He's Elohim. He is this one of might and power who transcends the world that he created. He is the uncreated creator. The Lord is Elohim. He's the powerful one. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah is telling us that God's dependability endures for all time and for all eternity. The Lord is the everlasting God. Nothing that happened in your life yesterday, nothing that's happening in our lives today, and nothing that will happen in your life tomorrow changes who God is. He is always the everlasting God who saves sinners. Life changes. We know that for all of us. But the Lord is always the everlasting God. God, you may go into work tomorrow and you may lose your job. But the Lord is still the everlasting God. And you may be struggling in your marriage at this time in your life. But the Lord is still the everlasting God. And you may be living under tremendous financial pressure that just weighs you down in life. But the Lord, He's the everlasting God. He is who He was yesterday. He is the same today. He'll be the same tomorrow. He is always the covenant God of absolute power. You may be diagnosed tomorrow with a life-threatening illness. But the Lord is still the everlasting God. He is always Yahweh. He is always Elohim. He is always the the personal transcendent God of power who is unaffected by anything that is external to him. Nothing affects God. He's dependable always. But he also reminds us that God's dependability endures everywhere, in every place. He's, he reminds us he is the creator of the ends of the earth. We see earlier in the chapter how God creates and controls all of planet earth. But he's reminding us that God knows the place on earth where you live. 
He knows your address. He knows your circumstance. He knows that place of your struggle and your suffering. And wherever you are, whatever is happening to you, it is happening in His world. It is happening on His planet Earth. And He is in absolute control of it. It's His place. That place where you struggle with your sin. That place belongs to Him. It's under His control. That moment of weak faith, it's, it's His place. It's the place that belongs to Him. When you're overtaken by despair, God is still there unchanged. When you're weary on the road of life, it is still the place where God is. When the daily responsibilities of life are so overwhelming, it is still the place where the everlasting God is. When your struggle for survival and betterment in life seems hopeless, you've tried and tried again, and you want to give up, you are still in God's place. He's there. You can trust Him. There is no place on earth, no circumstance in life that is not under the sovereign and gracious control of the creator of the ends of the earth. And Isaiah reminds the people of God that God's dependability cannot be compared to human dependability. He endures unlike humanity. He does not faint or grow weary. I used to like to watch a lot the world's strongest man contest. I don't know if I saw Brian on there or not. But I enjoyed watching these men, many of them from Baltic countries or Scandinavian countries and Every once in a while, the U.S. would win something. But these massive guys that are just unbelievably strong. And I watched, you know, the contest they go to. Remember the vehicle pull? Imagine strapping yourself to a tractor or the tractor trailer and pulling it uphill and seeing how long you can last. But the truth is, some pull it farther than others, but in the end, nobody can keep pulling it. Or I like the one, they call it the Hercules hold. You've got these two massive pillars that you're strapped to that are pulling that way. And you've got to hold them up. They probably weigh five, six hundred pounds apiece. And you're holding them and holding them and they're timing you to see how long can you endure or how long before it rips you apart if you don't let go. But everybody gets weary. They have that Husafel stone. It weighs about 400 pounds and you carry it high on the chest and see how far you can carry it before you finally have to drop it. But everybody drops it. 
And then the final contest, the last man standing. We have this 55-inch bar across the ring. And you have this 350-pound stone that you have to lift up and in a certain, in 10 seconds I think it is, and put it over the bar. And if you get it over, you get back in line. And if you can't get it over, you're out. And it keeps going until the last man is standing. But eventually, it doesn't matter how strong you are. It is only God who never faints, never grows weary. He is the only one who will never, ever fail you. He does not faint or grow weary. You will never find that God is too tired or too exhausted to help you. I confess, there are times I don't want to have another phone call with somebody saying, I need help. You get tired. And some people, we call them EGR people. It's a technical term. It simply means extra grace required. (laughs) But sometimes that runs out. You say with anyone long enough, you will find something in, in them that will disappoint you. But he does not faint or grow weary. He is never too exhausted to help you. When you have those sleepless nights of worry that just bring you to exhaustion when that that alarm bell rings because you, you haven't slept. You've worried. You've exhausted yourself worrying. But he's unaffected. He does not faint or grow weary. When you've had those endless days and nights of working for survival and you've depleted all of your energy and you feel like I can't go on another day. He does not faint or grow weary. When you want to give up fighting for your marriage because you've run out of energy. Isaiah wants you to know that there is a God that you can call on who never faints, never grows weary, who is always pursuing what is right and good and he is relentless in that and never quits. And he reminds us with the final phrase of verse 28 that God's dependability endures even though we can't fathom it. We can't comprehend it. His understanding is unsearchable. Now that should be a comfort to you. I know it is to me because there are problems that I just can't solve sometimes. And there are situations which it doesn't matter how much I think or how much I research or how much I write that I cannot find the solution I don't understand. 
his understanding, there's never been a problem that God doesn't, didn't already know the answer to. Matter of fact, God never learned anything. He never learned anything. He knows it all comprehensively and perfectly from beginning to end. This is who you want to trust, not your neighbor, not your best friend. And don't even put your faith in your pastor. Follow his advice, but remember, he's human. Your pastor, your elder, no one can save you. Only God saves sinners. This everlasting God. Then verses 29 through 31 tell us that his dependability is experienced by those who wait in faith. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted, but... They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He's reminding us again that everyone will find themselves in need of God's dependability. Everyone. Even the youth. The young men. We think of with their strength and their endurance. I find out that the older I get, the endurance goes first. The strength is often there. I, I jokingly say, and I don't, I don't want to get in a fight, but if I got in a fight, I'd have to end in about 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the truth. It's not just old men, older men that get weary. Even the youths, the young men, will find those situations in life that exhaust all of their resources. They become weary. But you know, this is where God wants us. He wants us to be depleted of our self-dependence. You know the story of Paul, where he talks about having been lifted up into the third heavens. And, you know, what took place there, the visions that he saw, what, what, the, the experience that he had. And then it says that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. God brought about in his life some kind of pain and suffering lest he be proud, lest he think of himself more than he ought to. God made him weak. And as you know the verse, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. As long as I'm running around saying, I can do it, I'm strong. I will never know that supernatural 
intervention of God in my life. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then I love Paul's response. Many of us know my grace is sufficient for you, but many of us don't know verse 10, where Paul says, therefore I take pleasure in weakness, in sickness, because when I'm weak, when I've exhausted all of my powers of reasoning and when I've exhausted all of my abilities, when, when I've come to the end of myself, when I'm weak, he says, then God steps in when I look to him in repentance and faith, when I look to Christ who is alone my sufficiency and I abide in him by faith. And his life becomes more of a reality in me. I take pleasure in that. For when I am weak, then am I strong. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. There's good news for you tonight. You're exhausted. Life is wearing you out. Your circumstances are wearing you out. Feel like you can't go on. I'm weak. There's no way that I can live in this situation any longer or handle this. Isaiah is telling us you're in a good place because that's where God meets you. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Now, Isaiah doesn't give us the theology of how God does that. But the New Testament certainly tells us about our union with Jesus Christ through the Spirit. The Spirit of God in salvation brings us into union with the very life of Christ so that who He is and what He has can become a reality in our life. I listen to Paul pray for other believers. And he says, I, I, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul says, I pray that you will have a work of the Spirit in your life that will make the gospel, your union with Christ, a reality. Jesus said, abide in me. And you'll bear fruit. My life will become your life. That's why Paul said, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. I know how to suffer plenty. I know how to be hungry. I know how to have abundance. I know how to have need. I can face all these circumstances in life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's important that you keep that in its context. 
that whatever your circumstances are in life, if you are in Christ and in union with Christ and trust in Christ, that you can endure those circumstances in a faithful way that honors the God who saves you. But he reminds us that what we need is a patient and persistent faith for our strength to be renewed. They who wait upon the Lord. And the Hebrew is clear. It means you keep waiting. You characteristically wait. That this is who you are. You're looking to the God who saves sinners. You're looking to the God who holds the seven seas in his hand. You're looking to the God who's measured the universe by the span of his hand. You're looking to the God who has weighed the mountains of the earth. You're looking to this everlasting God who has made covenant with you to be your savior through Jesus Christ. Those who wait, and that should be the cry of our hearts tonight, Lord, help me to believe who you are and just wait on you. There are no other saviors out there. At least there's none like you because you are unique. Wait on him in your struggle with sin. Keep looking to Jesus Christ who died and rose again. Wait on him. And you will mount up with wings as eagles run and not be weary and walk and not faint. In your despair, wait on him. When you're weary on that road of life, wait on him. When the daily responsibilities of life are killing you, wait on him. When you're struggling for survival and just trying to get ahead, wait on him. When your disappointment is heart rendering, wait on him. And one day when your body is failing and your health is wasting away and death is knocking at your door, keep waiting on him. He is the God who saves sinners. He is the only one that saves sinners. And I realize tonight that Many of you suffer in an unbearable way, and there may be that nobody even knows how deeply you suffer. It's really part of being human. It's the one commonality of humanity is that we suffer in different ways. Even as a child of God, even as I quote, the Lord is my shepherd, I can suffer as God leads me and guides me through, through life. I realize sometimes I suffer because of my own sin. Sometimes I suffer because of the sins of others. And sometimes I suffer because I'm just living in a world that is broken and stuff happens. But we suffer. But our comfort is knowing that our suffering, I know my suffering will end. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. I may be a Johnny Erickson who lives 
a lifetime in a body that has arms and legs that does not move. But I know my suffering will end because the resurrection will take place. And my present comfort is knowing that the God who saved sinners has given his son to die the death that I deserve has brought him out of the grave triumphantly and by his spirit has brought me into union with this son of God. And he will sustain me through life and he will strengthen me through life. I love the close of Peter's book, his first epistle, and I close with this. These are his closing words to the suffering people of God. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Be firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you. And Peter says to him, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.